You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. This is the second episode of the Calc series. The average day for statisticians, it's not mean. So today we will give you actually insights in how a day in the life of a statistician in the medical field actually looks like. What companies are out there, what, is, what kind of statistics is needed, um, how your kind of environment looks like, how your interactions look like. Um, so really about all these different things that you can actually uh, learn there. And you will see it's not like you are sitting behind your PC all the time and hacking away lots of code. There is actually quite some interesting things going on. So in this episode, we will have Amanda, Brienne, Jess, Amy and myself. And if you want to learn more about this episode as well as the overall season, please go to theeffectivestatistician.com student and there you will find lots of other things. If you haven't listened to the intro episode uh, or the episode four weeks ago, I would encourage you to go back to that and uh, check out the development process, the overall uh, process of how drugs come to market and what the statisticians uh, are actually doing in that. Now, welcome to another episode for the Calc team. And this time will be a really, really, really practical and insightful um, for anybody that joins the industry and probably also for those that are early in the industry and haven't, haven't worked across lots of different organizations yet. So, um, and it's also a pretty great group that we have here. So we have Amanda, we have Rianne, Jess and Amy here that we, um, so that we can really present a variety of different um, jobs across the industry because I think one key thing is there's no one stats job that is like the other. There is a huge variability in terms of what you do, uh, your day-to-day -day activities look like and um, so this episode really will give you a little bit of a sense of how a day in the life of a statistician actually looks like. So um, let's start with you, Rian. Tell us a little bit about your organizational setup and, and your reflections on the statistics department you're working in. So I work for a pharmaceutical company. It's a, a large global pharmaceutical company. About the setup, the company has like over nearly 100K employees worldwide, not just stats, but just generally in the companies. It's very large. The stats group is large. It's We have five locations across the globe in five different countries. Um, so I'm obviously in the UK. How many statisticians work in your stats department approximately? I think we've got 45. Um, our 
site in uh, the US, I would say 70 to 80. Um, we have one in Shanghai, which is about 10, 15. I would say the setup, just to go a bit further in yeah, terms yeah. of, um, we're split by two ways, I would say. Um, you either fall in early phase or mm -hmm. late phase. And within those, you're typically split by um, disease area. So, so oncology, respiratory, exactly. disease kind of different things. So okay. I, I would fall in um, inflammation, infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. um, someone else might work specifically in oncology. Okay, okay, very good. So, and how is that for uh, you, Jess? Yes, yeah, so I work in an academic clinical trials unit. So mine's quite difficult, different to Rianne's sort of situation. So we just have one office and there is about 250 people roughly in total. Um, in terms of stats, the stats team is about 40 people and we're split generally by, um, I guess I would describe it by either the intervention or the disease area. So we have a, a large cancer, a late phase cancer and an early phase cancer division. Um, we also have a complex interventions division and we've also got, um, it's recently rebranded, so it's called Surgical Interventions, Diagnostics and Devices division as well. So I fall within the early phase team. If you mention 40 statisticians, mm -hmm. are these statisticians and programmers together? Yes, so as a statistician within the um, academic trials unit that I work in, you are expected to do your own programming. We don't employ programmers to do that for us. How is that for you, Rianne? Because you, I think, counted only the, let's say, pure statisticians, not the programmers in, uh, in addition, didn't you? Yeah, so to clarify, in um, the pharmaceutical <laughs> company, we have a statistics group and we have a separate programming group and they work very, very closely together, but they are separate. So the um, 45 that I'd mentioned were purely statistics. We have even more in the programming group. I think there are more like 60, 70. So between stats and programming in the UK, it's over 100. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that is, and that can vary actually across the industry quite a lot. So some companies have really a lot of programmers in-house and some other companies nearly completely outsourced that. So then the programmers would all sit at a, a contract research organization or usually just called CRO. And then in, you would work together with the programmers that are not at your side or at maybe they are at your side but, but not working for the same company. Yeah. yeah, so what I've mentioned was purely internal employees, not including those we might work with, statisticians or programmers we might work with externally, which I guess brings us on to. Uh, yep, that brings us on, on to Amy. So tell us about your world. So yeah, so I work for a CRO, so we often work quite closely either with small biotech companies or with the large pharmaceutical companies that have those compounds that they're looking to analyse and either don't have enough resource available. So that's where we step in with the, I guess, programming and stats, almost consultancy work sometimes. Um, and I mean, there's different, there's, you, you, we've seen the differences between the pharma companies, but even between the CROs, there's big differences there. 
So I work for a small CRO, so we just provide the stats and programming support, so we don't provide the data management support, um, whereas other companies may do. We only have between 10 to 12 permanent employees. Other CROs will have far more than that, um, the hundreds kind of thing. So there's big differences there. Um, and it's um, also the, the structure within the company as well. So the company I work for is quite a flat structure. So we've got the 10 to 12 permanent employees, um, most of them with a lot of years experience, like 10 plus years experience. So I'm very junior, so I have um, four years experience in the industry. So there's a lot of things that you can learn differently and pros and cons between the CROs and the farmers. Yeah, and I think that is a important thing. There's lots of variation within pharma, yeah. uh, from very small biotech companies to uh, you know companies that have beyond 100,000 employees. And the same is true with CROs. So you, you yeah. just work for relatively small CRO, but if you think about IQ via Pyxel and a couple of these others really big CROs, they are what's called full-service providers, so they, they not only provide statistical support, but all the other things that you need to do around clinical trials and, and beyond. So, so these are also very often companies that have 10,000 employees and more, so very, very different setup. Now we get to another big company. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I was going to say, my, the company I work for, which is another big pharmaceutical company, is very similar to Rianne's company, probably around 100,000 employees, um, multinational, etc., etc. But I guess the key difference is that I work in a small group within the UK, so um, there's about four four of us in the UK working in, in the, sort of the part of the company that, that I report into. So, again, it's late phase. Um, I specifically work on CV-MET cardiovascular studies, um, but then most of the other statisticians within in the company are in the US, so there's probably, I don't know, 150 or so in the, in the US and a few in China as well, and, and just a small group in the UK. So so I guess that's another thing to consider, you know, within all the, all the companies that we work for and all the organisations, you sort of almost want to see what's happening locally within the country you're applying for a job in, um, and see what other locations they might have and, and what interactions you might have with other other people within within the company and other locations. So I, I mostly work with people in the US. Oh, yeah, and not so much people locally, so um, it just depends. And that's the same for me as well. So even mm. though we have the one site um, based in Manchester and we're just one small company, yeah. you're working with those other companies on a daily basis exactly. and they're global companies yeah. often so you will often find yourself working mm. with people in um, South Africa, yeah. in the US, mm. um, in China, uh, all across the world. Yeah. So, well, I think that's, I mean, that's one really nice aspect of the job. It depends, it depends if you want to work face to face with someone. Like, I guess I sometimes miss not having a study team around me and that I can just go to someone's desk and ask them a question. But then again, you are working with people all over the world. So you do, you do get that sort of mix of cultures and mix of working sort of practices as well that you learn from, from other people in different countries. On, on my team, um, so there's me in the UK, I have um, someone in the US and then someone else in Shanghai trying to get yeah, a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I know. With the US and Shanghai, it's 
not really possible. It, mm. It's very difficult. So um, it's quite interesting with the global team yeah. introduces different challenges. Although I always think it's good we're in the UK because we're right in the middle. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the UK, we're easier nice. to slot in. We're quite flexible. Yeah. So I've worked previously also for um, a pretty large pharma company, heavily US-based, and if you work there then in the headquarter, most of the others would sit basically on the same floor with you that you work with. Uh, however, I was working from Europe and um, we had a European team that was set, yeah, spread across Europe, very virtual organized, and um, that comes with lots of pros and cons. Um, and now I'm working for uh, another little bit smaller pharma company that is much more European based and has a much more European emphasis, also spread across a couple of different um, locations across Europe and there's a lot of virtual interactions there. Mm -hmm. But I'm not so kind of, don't have so much the problem of the time zones that I had in, in the past. So uh, I think one key takeaway is there's a huge variety in all these kind of uh, aspects and even if you work for large pharma organization, within that large pharma organization there can be it also can be quite, quite a lot of variety. So if you look out for a new job, look specifically what are the circumstances <clears throat> and what is kind of nice for you uh, to work with. I quite like the whole working with the people in the different countries across the world though because even just at a study design level that comes in so useful with the different cultural societal norms and different the way that the geography may affect your child yeah. so whether that's to do with what would a patient report to um, a clinician would they actually be open and honest about all of their adverse events would you would you get that full range of information um, and that that can sometimes differ between countries I think that it's really very very much working with lots of different people around the world that's I think is common across all the different jobs it's not yes. just sitting behind your desk typing programs along the, all yeah, the time, no, <laughs> it's, no. it's a lot working but together. With I was going to say, but Jess, yours, is yours more sort of locally yeah, based? Yeah, so mine is completely local, uh, locally based. Um, the trials I work on are just national trials, so they'll be an early phase. We've just got a few centres around the UK on each of them. Um, everybody I work with on a day-to-day -day basis is within like maybe a 100 metre walk. <laughs> <laughs> sort of thing. So if yeah, I've got any questions nice. that I like, like quite quick questions we just tend to pop to each other's desks mm. or um, the only exception to that is um, the clinicians they mm. tend to be based in the hospitals and stuff so but they're based in the hospitals in the UK so we can have mm. phone calls with them yeah. at normal time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I once set up the meeting I was I just started basically at, at this pharma company not really having that experience of global working and um, I just put a meeting with my scientists in the calendar not realising it's 5am Oh, they no. <laughs> <laughs> West Coast America. Yeah, West Coast, oh. so you, you know quite quickly. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I also got lots of invites for kind of 9pm meetings yeah. and things like that at the beginning. So um, I think that depends on personal priorities and personal preferences, what's the best 
But I think this huge variety gives lots of opportunities to work in different settings. It also gives lots of opportunities for different travel arrangements, where, as I guess you just, you're not traveling that much. No, not traveling that much, no. I am traveling very, very heavily, so, um, and I know of other statisticians that kind of travel even on a weekly basis mm -hmm. to, to different locations. So let's go a little bit into the day-to-day -day activities. So, Ryan, what does a typical day for you look like? This is a hard <laughs> question because I don't think there is a typical day. Um, you could ask me this six months earlier and six months from now. The answer I'd give you would be different. I think ultimately it depends on the task of the project that you're on at the time. Um, I guess in my experience, um, I've to give you a flavour, um, I've worked some on trial design type work. Um, what does it mean, trial design type work? So, so is that you read a lot of books and, and then write up your trial design and, and then get them, or how does it work? So I guess you're put in a team and there's an objective, you're, you're trying to, it might be a phase three, let's, let's go with a phase three trial for an yeah. example. Um, you're a statistician, you've been put in a team with a clinical scientist, a regulatory person. The regulatory person, by the way, um, they're there because they know the FDA. Uh, you might have a US regulatory who know the FDA. Um, you might have a EU regulatory person who know the EMA. Um, Do you have like a pharmacokinetics person? Pharmacology sits on that. Yeah. Um, safety person. Outcomes. Safety. Yeah. Missing so many. Health, health outcome person. Outcomes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sure there's another. Yeah. A couple of different physicians. I think, yeah. Uh, so, so you will have a lot of different meet, meet people that you meet and discuss and optimize things. Well, yeah, there's, there's a, yeah. I guess the first thing is what? Establishing the question, the objective. Um, yeah. And you have to do that as a, a team, mm -hmm. um, and that can be quite broad. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot of research, and I really enjoy that because I get to learn a lot. So, for example, you know, I might be new to the disease area, so I'm going to read up on, on the disease, um, the biology. I, I might ask my scientists, actually, can we have a meeting? Can you explain to me the yeah. disease so I can understand it? Uh, the population yeah. or how, how medicine actually is supposed to work the mechanism of action yeah. of the medicine um, understanding the endpoints uh, when I say endpoints it's understanding the variables basically the variables what, what is yeah. it you're studying so for example oncology might be survival progression free yeah, yeah. Um, a respiratory trial might be a force vital Capacity, which is uh, which is an endpoint that basically just measures how fast you can inhale, so to say. Yeah, is it blowing out? Exhale. Oh, blowing out. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it like lung function. Yeah. Lung, lung function. Yeah. Um, might be rheumatoid arthritis, where it's more imaging, X-ray type endpoint. So or it might be questionnaires, completely um, well, different. Yeah. Exactly. Um, that's where it gets really interesting. What are the requirements? Um, you mentioned questionnaires, so you'd have someone from your patient reported outcome expert and they'll say well hang on um, you know all these things you're talking about so far are just meeting the regulatory um, standards but what about beyond that um, for these payer discussions we don't have anything that can relate to the patient and, and that's what payers are interested in so sometimes you have 
different requirements for different audiences, so it's important to have this cross-functional team to get everyone's input in um, to establish your needs. I think that is a very, very big separation from university work, mm -hmm. where you basically get a task and all these things are already figured out, whereas in our day-to-day -day activities, lots of these things are not yet clearly defined, mm -hmm. so you basically first need to come to the point where kind of, you know, your statistical analysis could be done in place, but mm -hmm. you always need to have that basically in the back of your mind, yeah. uh, how that would look like, yeah. and then having that in mind talks through all the kind of different uh, objectives and different kind of design aspects, like what's the right population, what's the right length of the treatment, what are the right measurements, what are the kind of, you know, other design aspects that you can mm. can include to, yeah. to make from, better. Yeah. From an early phase academic trials unit point of view as well, we're typically funded by charities um, rather than, um, we do have pharmaceutical companies who do uh, um, fund some of the trials, but typically it's funded by charities. So usually we have a restricted budget on our trials, so that feeds in massively into um, what you're thinking of doing for your trial design. So as you were saying about, it's really important to determine the research question, but then it's important to know, actually, can we answer this research question with the funding we have, given how many patients we can actually achieve with this? So mm -hmm. the funding might be based on a patient basis for example, or something like that. So we know maybe a maximum number of patients that we could recruit in that trial, just limited due to limited funding, for example. So does that mean you have to be quite creative? Yeah, so this design. is sometimes why the simulations come into play to see what we could achieve with certain things. And then, yeah, it's a lot of reading literature to see what's out there and see if there are any um, designs that suit that area or answer that question most appropriately whilst trying to reduce the sample size. Amy, what, how does that look for you in your world? So is that... What's in the terms point? of the design aspects and these kind of things? So the design aspect, um, it, it differs on the role you're playing. So working, so I've more recently been embedded within a large pharmaceutical company, so then my role would be quite similar to Rianne's role, I was work acting as that study statistician um, for the pharma company. So you, you have a, a massive input then on the, the study design and um, just to, to add to that as well, working not just internally but externally as well. So advisory boards, you bring in, in these, key, um, the, these key experts that are the very best physicians, clinicians in their particular therapeutic area and you're talking to them trying to find out what they're really interested in if there's some avenue they've not gone down before that they want to pursue and how can the stats you use um, be involved in that and is there anything innovative you can do as well uh, can you apply particular stats methods that haven't been used before um, so that study design is really interesting to me I think it's and it's beyond what you've done at university, like we say, you don't really get into that, but if you're interested in the therapeutic area and in the pharma industry, it's a really fun part of the study um, design, the study process. Yeah. Um, but then if you're working with the smaller biotechs, that gets more 
similar to kind of um, what Jess was saying, where you've probably got a bit more financial limitation. So not that that's not a limitation with pharma companies because it depends on the compound. Um, but with the smaller biotechs, it tends to be that that's their sole compound. Um, they're really hoping that that's going to work. So the interactions you have there may be slightly different. They will be a lot more involved and um, you provide a lot more consultancy, I think, in terms of you're, you're the one that understands the stats and programming requirements, the requirements of the FDA, the EMA, what they're looking for more so than perhaps the, the internal um, members of the and the, the drivers of the, the key stakeholders in that biotech company. Um, so there's a lot more, I guess, emotional investment from them. Yeah. Um, so it's very different experiences depending on who you're working with. Maybe a little bit of an um, interesting thing is the programming. So over the course of my pro career there was a lot of variation in terms of mm -hmm. how I did programming. Yeah. At the beginning I think I was programming pretty much every day mm -hmm. a little bit yeah. and over time that decreased a lot to the extent that I need to say that for quite some time I didn't even have SARS on my PC. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> so, um, how is that for you? Um, okay, I'll go, it's Rianne. So, I think my experience is different. When I first started out, I was at a large CRO. The first two years was pretty much programming in SAS every day. I had a lot of hands-on experience mm -hmm. programming databases, programming tables, listings, graphs. I, I don't particularly like graphs in SAS. <laughs> um, Who likes graphs? <laughs> um, yeah, coming to the pharmaceutical company, a lot of what I was doing is then done. What I was doing at the CIO, sorry, it was done by the programming team because it's a bigger disconnect in, in the pharmaceutical so I was definitely less hands-on on the programming side um, and maybe got a bit more involved in the, the study side so maybe I had more involvement in trial designs um, that kind of thing less less programming. Just hold that for you. Um, so I'd say my when I'm programming it kind of comes in phases um, so when I first started um, uh, the trials unit, um, the trials I were working on, they were all in setup. So this is before they've recruited any patients. So it was um, designing the trial, setting up the database, um, developing the trial protocol as well. So that was a lot of reading, um, understanding as well the processes of the unit and how it differs across the different disease areas within cancer in general, I mean, and stuff like that, and the different drugs that we use. Um, but then I might have phases where I'm doing safety reporting, so that would be just me programming, um, just to produce the safety reports. Um, recently, I've been doing a lot of programming because I'm working on an analysis, um, but on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't use it that often really but it's SAS that I tend to use mm. for programming. Um, that's sorry no, Jess, okay. I think that's an interesting topic it's predominantly SAS right now but certainly we're um, using R more and more mm -hmm. um, yeah. to the point yeah. where I'd say you know I joined the industry six years ago and already um, I, I don't have R skills but it's going that way so 
you know, the requirements change and I'm already seeing that to some extent. So yeah. I'm trying to upskill on the job and, and start <laughs> learning R. I know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not an R user and I sort of feel I need to be for certain aspects of the job. So for a lot of the, the modelling and the simulation work that we do, yeah. when you're designing a trial, R is more useful. Whereas I think for some of the sort of data manipulation and analyses that you do later on, or maybe exploratory analyses, I find SAS yeah. much better. Tabulations yeah. so, are a lot yeah. nicer in SAS. So it sort yeah. of depends what, what you're trying to do, really. I think there is a lot of variety in terms of programming. Mm. I think it also depends on the, the company, it yeah. depends on the procedures in the company. Um, this, yeah, oh, the stage as well. Well, the stage. So for me, again, it, it completely. Di I think for everyone, the key thing here is it differs a lot mm -hmm. within a company, dependent on the study you're working on, the therapy area, the the is it a late phase, early phase, mm -hmm. the. Pro, the, the programming language you'd use may differ, um, the stage of a study, so you could be using SAS for a simulation for a sample size calculations, but then you could be using SAS for reporting at the end of the study, or in, I mean one of the key things that I'd be using the, the programming for, so in my role where I was working within a pharmaceutical, but I actually had oversight of another CRO who produced all the stats analyses for us. So when it came to a BDR, which is a blinded data review, um, also known as like a dry run, so there we're looking to see that the tables um, have been created using blinded data. We're looking to see that the tables and the outputs are as expected. Do we need to tweak footnotes? Do we need to add anything else there? Um, and a lot of the time we're double checking that the analyses during that BDR, that the results that we get using some kind of quality control QC mm -hmm. where we've created our own programs matches what um, the, the CRO have produced so that when it comes to the end of the study, yeah. we're reporting, you've got that big time crunch to see has this drug worked making sure that we can kind of trust that that data and it's the same if it's not done by another CRO you will always with the programming you you tend to dual program particularly the kind of key efficacy analyses key safety analyses to make sure that we can fully 100 percent um, trust those study results because human errors happen so yeah. you always want to make sure more people are doing that. But, but I think that's a very very good point Amy that you're making and that is probably similar across all the areas. Um, working with programmers, specifications of the, uh, of the analysis and checking uh, the results, Q, uh, quality checking, or we often say QCing, yeah. <laughs> these things is, is really a lot of uh, the work mm -hmm. um, in all areas because you really don't want to present something that is not right or that doesn't look right and for sure you don't want to send that to, to regulators. No. So, I mean, yeah. The FDA especially will do their own analyses to check yes. so yeah. they will replicate your analyses to make yeah. sure that they seem correct so you don't want, yeah, you want to make sure you've done that first. Yeah, And, and then of course you will have internal SOPs, standard operating procedures that describes mm -hmm. how to create these programs so that they are in a, in a good environment and in in written in such a way that you can actually QC them, um, how they are conceived and all these kind of things, what's required as a review, what's required as a QC. But I think that's, that's a lot of the work to make sure that everything is correct and yeah. right. And 
when it then comes to the unblinding of the study, is that you basically more or less, more or less, only need to press the button to get the results. <laughs> if it works a little bit more, but, but uh, uh, yeah, then you have everything kind of preset. Set. There's not a lot of effort afterwards yeah. in terms of getting all the pre-specified analysis. All the other exploratory analysis is a different setting, mm -hmm. but um, yeah. Okay, so in terms of um, skills in your area, uh, Rianne, what would you think are the most important skills that help you to succeed at your day-to-day -day activities? Um, I, I guess as a start session starting point, the entry requirement is a background in statistics, <laughs> um, knowledgeable there, um, but um, I would say the next biggest point is communication. So, oh yes. yeah. Um, yeah. I know people say it a lot, um, yeah. it's a soft skill, but it, it's you critical. really see how critical it is mm. in our setting where you're working with, yeah. your team are non-statisticians, you're the single statistician, the people that you're talking to have to understand to you, so it's a very different game coming from university when everyone you're talking to about your coursework, asking for help, is you know, on the same page as you. Um, it's very surprising how little um, other people know, you know, even like a clinician. Mm -hmm. um, what, 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 saying something like linear, kind of even they didn't understand what linear meant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really have to boil it down, and, and that takes experience. Um, yeah. And uh, I find a lot of the time I'm just acting as a bit of a translator between, say, a programmer and a clinician. Yes. So you, you know what the programmer's done, because quite often you've written the analysis plan and you've sort of said, okay, this is what needs to happen. Programmer will come back to the team and say, you know, this, these are the results, or you know, they'll present some of the results back to you. But then you're the one that has to work out, as Amy was saying, is that correct? And then translate that to the clinician on the team. Really, very often I see that you have this medical scientific question at the beginning, yeah. you translate it through stats mm -hmm. into programming mm -hmm. and then from the programming you need to, over the stats, you need to basically translate it back into yeah, medical world or clinical interpretation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as a statistician you're, yeah, you're that key very, person, yeah. 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 And, yeah. and beyond that you have to make sure that the data that you collect in the study, and I think Jesse you probably get more involved in this, yeah. um, is the correct data in order for the programming to happen, for then you to get the right results, yeah. and then to be able to interpret those results for the clinical team. So yeah, so that's something that I'm a lot of my time has been spent recently doing is where we'll be opening one of the trials that I work on fairly soon. So we're setting up the database. So it's thinking about mm. the analysis plan and thinking about what. Um, data do we actually need to answer these questions specifically and at what time points do we need to collect them so yeah. it's making sure that they are collected properly it's also making sure um, I think we might have mentioned this earlier but it's also making sure that we're not collecting too much data because we don't want to put sites off not returning data like nurses are very busy obviously on a day-to-day -day basis so they don't need to be entering more data than we don't need but, yeah. but also yeah. you need to think about, well, what analysis are you doing at the end? Because, I mean, that's it. You, know, you need to know the end goal to start. Exactly. And, and you might want to know, well, actually, if this subject drops out of the study, do you yeah. still want, to, drops out of taking their medication, rather, do you still want to collect data on them and, and things like that? And it's, it's all of that forward thinking that has to be done right at the beginning yeah. Yeah. and not at the end when you come to analyse. Yeah. Yeah. So I think strategic, long-term thinking is really, mm. really important. Having yeah. the end in mind is really, really important. Mm. 
I think the um, collection method in itself is quite interesting because mm. it could be something like an x-ray that you can only... As, as statisticians, we want as much data as we can, but you can't put a person through an x-ray like <laughs> so many times a year. So yeah, then you yeah have exactly. The, sometimes it feels silly, like, you know, we would want to collect something often and then that's where the clinician comes in and says, well, you can't do that. You can't put a patient through that. It's like, oh, okay. Um, whereas something else I've worked on, we want to collect um, information daily because the, the symptom can fluctuate daily mm -hmm. and, and we get that through diary data, for example. Um, and then you liaise with the operations person. Is this realistic for them? What yep. time of day does it get collected? What's the recall? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, do you need to have a paper diary or do you have uh, something electronic? Or, or electronic? Well, that's, that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Electronics, yeah. but um, <laughs> that's when it comes back to the patient population as well. Then, yeah. As well, doesn't it? Well, if it's elderly, to, then yeah. you're not going yeah. to do that. Yeah. 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 I think the key skill uh, that we identified here is negotiation skills are really, mm -hmm. really important mm -hmm. because you can't just go in and that's how it needs to be, full stop. Yeah. That mm -hmm. will yeah. just not work. You have so many different side conditions from a regulatory perspective, from an operational perspective, from a finance perspective, from a uh, patient uh, and physician burden perspective. There's so many different things that you need to take into, a, uh, into account mm -hmm. and it all these different things need to come together so that you can actually run a successful study. Um, uh, because if any of these conditions is, isn't met, then that can basically fail your complete study. It you know, can ruin your recruitment time, it may not be feasible for, uh, from a finance perspective, it may not be you know, leading to the claims that you want to have in your label. So these are all kind of different negotiation skills that you need. So and that's not just within your study team as well. So once you've kind of, once you've had all these big discussions, negotiated everything within your study team, you've come to an agreement, you've then got to go to the, the key stakeholders, the senior management, the CEO, and pitch that idea, pitch your study design against other study designs within your company in order to obtain the funding for it. Yeah. So we were discussing earlier actually in saying about, well, that's the other thing is you, you've got to kind of have a bit of re resilience as well because yes. You, yes. You, you can get to that point where you've spent months preparing this study and then you get to a point of putting it in front of someone, they say, well, no, actually, that money would be better spent elsewhere. And so you just need to know that that's part of the process and you need to be able to pick yourself back up, get back on with it, um, move on. So there's lots of different uh, skill sets beyond just the, let's say, the methods part that yeah. is really, really important and will make a big difference whether you have a good career or not. Yeah. Okay, I think we could go on forever <laughs> yeah. in terms of speaking about soft skills. Um, I would say we um, cut it here. Thanks so much for uh, Rian, Amanda, uh, Jess and Amy uh, to, to help with that and give us a really diverse view on what is the life of a statistician. It depends a lot on where you're working, which department, in which uh, organization you're working, which phase you're working in it, sometimes even the indication you're working in. So there's a lot of varieties of, of, uh, of choices and opportunities, but I think there's a couple of 
really core skills and especially the soft skills that are needed everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so um, that is also something that you can develop on during your time at university. It's something that you know you can train early in your career and have really an, as an emphasis in your development plan. Um, make that as an emphasis in your development plan beyond just kind of the technical learnings because if you're a really good technical person but you fall flat on all the uh, soft skills, you can't bring that power on the road. And so, so both needs to come together to be uh, in effective statistician. Thanks so much and talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode. It was a really, really awesome interview and I hope you had as much fun as I did with the recording. This is done in association with the PSI Calc team. Obviously, these were all the people on the, um, on the interview and I'm really looking forward to have a couple of further episodes of this coming out. So the next episode will come out in about four weeks Thursday but of course next week on Tuesday we have our usual episode of the effective statistician and maybe that's interesting for you as well. If you want to learn more about it just go to theeffectivestatistician.com slash student and here there you will find more information about this, about all the other episodes of this season and so on. And if you like that please share this with anybody else that could benefit from it, be it other students, uh, other people that you know in the industry, please share it as wide as possible because we want to have students do well in this area and have a good start into their career and actually understand what they can expect from this career so they can make an informed decision. So please share it. Also please share it on social media. That would be really, really awesome. And if you want to give some feedback, just go to the homepage and respond to the end comment. Thanks so much and speak to you soon.